0: Here we go. A little bit of a nervous stomach, first episode, kind of jitters, getting them out. Oh, yes, indeed. It's been such a long time planning this. And
1: I am indeed, for a long time after, you know, podcasting in previous projects for so many years, I experienced this nervousness, this excitement when a new project starts, tries to get off the ground.
0: Stefan, I don't know if you have any like... uh... Well, I know you have a lot of podcasting background, but I don't know if you have any uh, like stage acting experience.
1: Not stage acting, but, but yeah, uh, like band, band experience. I'm a oh, musician. Ex- yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It feels like uh, not stage fright necessarily, but just kind of the adrenaline of, all right, we're about to perform. Let's <laughs> let's get things it's going. It's funny
2: because I've been breaking out in hives for like a, a different reason of kind of the middle groundedness of this in the sense that, you know, we do a lot of writing analytical articles, which of course is nerve wracking to jettison off into the world, but it's a wildly different kind of construction and preparation and articulation. And then on the other hand, you know, Dan, you and I have both done a lot of presentations at PAX and things like that. And Stefan, I know you've done a lot of of academic presentations, but this is this weird middle ground of contemporaneous conversation that is recorded on the spot. And there's like a whole unique phenomenology to that kind of nervousness
1: yep wow and the good thing is we started out like this and we haven't even done the actual intro maybe we should
2: do that yeah
0: (laughs) no this is it this is
2: the podcast we just talk about how nervous we are (laughs) for an hour
0: Uh, i could do that we shift gears
1: you've met with a terrible fate a podcast on game studies and video game culture i'm stefan heinrich simond a game study scholar from germany i'm aaron saduko the founder of with a terrible fate
0: i'm dan hughes an analyst on the site
1: and you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. And yes, indeed, it is our very first episode. And we are all equally excited about this new project launch. So excited that we forgot <laughs> that we forgot the actual <laughs> intro in <laughs> the first episode. Wow. And wasn't it? There was a jazz musician. That's what I just thought about, um, uh, Dan, while you mentioned it. A jazz musician who always played with his back turned to the audience because he
0: was so nervous he couldn't handle the stage fright oh i think it was miles davis it may have been that that also makes me think about a similar uh uh, stand-up comedian mitch hedberg would stand and tell his jokes with his back to the the audience because he was so nervous so i guess we're in good company if we're talking about these folks
1: i actually realized that it would help my stage fright that one When I play a concert with my band, usually the lights are so bright on stage that you can't see the audience anyway. It's like you're all alone there.
0: Okay. Well, I have good news for you. We can't see anyone in our audience, so you're good. (laughs) Very similar. We know you're all out there, though, listening very intently, hanging on every word.
1: Exactly. And for that, we are also super grateful. Those of you that are already acquainted with with a Terrible Fate, you know that we strive to give everyone the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling, and that is exactly why this show is free and independent. You will not encounter any advertisements, you will not run straight into a paywall, and there's not going to be any sponsored content, which is quite common these days on the internet. And instead, we rely entirely on... On your support in making this happen. And if you do wish to contribute, then we would be most humbly grateful if you would check out patreon.com slash with a terrible fate to find out more. And while we talk about finding out more, we thought that it might not be the worst idea to do some brief introductions in our first episode, just so that all of you out there can get to know us a little bit in case you have not heard of With a Terrible Fate before, can get acquainted with the format of the website, and of course, also with the idea of this brand new podcast that we are launching right at this very moment. And we thought we're going to introduce ourselves briefly. Aaron, do you want to start? Because you're also the founder of With a Terrible Fate.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to. And and I'm tremendously honored to be embarking on this new podcast. Uh, You know, we've we've done a slightly less robustly designed podcast uh, in the past. And I think Rebirthing it in this way is appropriate for the times, appropriate for us in terms of what we're doing with the publication, uh, and an exciting way to to bring in you to the fold, Stefan. So excited to chat about that too. Uh, but yes, hello, listeners. It's it's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, as I said, my name is Aaron. I am the founder of What the Terrible Fate. Uh, right now, coming to you from Colorado, U.S., uh, where we've moved since uh, everything that's happened with the pandemic and COVID nineteen. And I hope everyone is staying safe and well uh, in the midst. Of the chaos that's still out there in the world. Uh, I feel just really honored to be able to say that we've been doing with a terrible fate in various forms for really five or six years now. Uh, And the analysis of video games has been a part of my life for almost a decade at this point. Uh, I actually started studying the stories of video games in high school after getting inspiration from a project uh, from one of the other guys in this podcast, Dan Hughes. So I'll I'll leave it to you, Dan, to chat a little bit about that. Uh, But basically, after after seeing that, I got inspired. I wanted to find a way to uh, integrate my studies in high school, which largely had to do with theater and psychology and questions of identity into my love of video games. So I undertook a project exploring that. When I got to college and started studying philosophy, things um, snowballed and and happenstance was such that uh, at the same time that I started studying philosophy, n- Nintendo also announced that they were remaking Majora's Mask, which happened to be not only one of the most formative games of my childhood, but also one of the games that I studied back in high school. And so Dan and I had a conversation about that, reflecting on how meaningful it was to us. And I started thinking, well, maybe there's something philosophically interesting about this game. Maybe... It's not just an interesting work of art, but something that, is illuminating in terms of how video games can tell stories that other media can't uh, and what makes them so cool. And so I started studying them in college. I was able to work with a few amazing professors on independent courses of study and just conversations about what makes the stories of video games interesting. And at the same time, I started what was at the time, this blog, just to write about Majora's Mask uh, and try to basically convince people of its artistic merit and also the artistic merit of video game stories more broadly and i had this wonderful experience where the more i started writing and publishing and that by the way is where the name with the terrible fate comes from for the publication if you're not familiar with majora's mask and you're scratching your head uh wondering what that is it's an homage to the game
1: yeah it was in a in a store or something right or character you would meet and he would say you've met with a terrible fate haven't you
2: it's one of the very first lines in the game. It's the first line uh, that's spoken to link the avatar by one of the most memorable and iconic and frankly terrifying characters from the Shigeru game. Shigeru Miyamoto. The Mask Salesman. <laughs> 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 well, well, we won't go there. But
0: <laughs> He's the Mask Salesman. Yes. Yeah. Because I, yeah, I remembered exactly. something along those lines. Yep, yeah, one of those... Those chilling lines that I think was, was formative, well, I know was formative for both Aaron and I when talking about video games. So very fitting that he chose that as the the banner for the website.
2: Well, it's one of those games, and we can chat more about this hopefully at some point when we dig into Majora's Mask in more depth. But uh, one of the things that I did as part of this project studying Majora's Mask was do um, you know proper close readings of particular lines that I thought were salient to the games, uh, as you would with literature or, or any other artwork, really. Uh, and one of them was that line. And it's interesting because Something as simple as that, when you try to unpack it and ask the questions of, for instance, well, whom is the Happy Mask salesman really talking to? What is this fate that he's talking about? Uh, Why does he phrase it as a question in the way that he does? What seems initially obvious, I think at least is much more subtle and interesting and interesting in a way that basically subtly points to the unexpected agency of the player in video games that a lot of people don't think about even when they're properly studying video games, but that has really become the cornerstone of what we do on With a Terrible Fate these days. So it's it's more than just an homage to the game. It's, it's a pointer to what we're all about. What you
0: you often, I feel like neglect to talk about when you're talking about the, um, the origin of the site is that your your presentation that you were referring to, the project that you put together um, in school was very much about, um, what it means to take on a role and the connection between the connection between the player and the avatar that they are using to navigate throughout the story of the game. And so I wanted you to just touch briefly on why, why did that speak to you so much? Why is that sort of the cornerstone of what you work on at the website?
2: Yeah, it's funny because, uh, you know, beyond the work that I do on the website, uh, just to zoom out and give kind of a an overview of the kind of work I do nowadays, I basically do two things um, in terms of the study of video games, right? I do, I do other things. You beyond do two that. things, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of video games, um, there's, there's the academic work that I've done uh, that is published. I'm working on some more of it right now. And um, that it can be broadly described basically as as a theory of exactly how player engagement factors into the fiction of video games um, and exactly what role the player takes on uh, when they engage with those stories because spoiler alert uh, I don't think it's the avatar uh, that's kind of a especially nowadays, a somewhat naive view of what um, player engagement looks like. Um, And then on With a Terrible Fate, I basically apply that broader theory to particular games in order to show how it's not just something that is inert and merely academic, but actually something that can allow you to read the games you love in a new and interesting way and give you a whole new insight into how your role in that game materially changes the context and import of the story, right? But in terms of that, broader theory that I've developed, it, it really, I think, is in large part owed to what else I was up to uh, back in high school with you, Dan, right? Uh, like I alluded to, one of my big things was theater, and not just theater in terms of acting, but actually um, kind of a 360 degree uh, perspective on theater. I directed, I wrote plays, I acted in plays, and I think that gave me an unusual mode of seeing and thinking about the video games that I was playing as a kid, because I really do think one of the things that is so special to me about player engagement is that, in a certain sense that obviously has to be specified more, it's like you occupy all those roles at the same time, right? You're a little bit of an actor when you pick up the control of a video video game, you're a little bit of a director, you're a little bit of the writer, Um, and it's more complicated than that, but it's that special way in which you're able to participate while also being in the audience that I think makes video games so apt for things like exploration of identity. Uh, And so that was why that first project I did at high school was it was actually comparative studies of particular video games juxtaposed against particular plays that I thought had similar role playing dynamics and dealt with identity in similar ways. So, for example, in my study of Majora's Mask, and you can find all of these uh, online in our publication, by the way, I looked at the way that. Link occupies different roles based on the masks that he puts on in Majora's Mask um, versus uh, Luigi Pirandello's seminal work, Six Characters in Search of an Author, which has six characters mysteriously appear on stage while a theater company is rehearsing the um, performance of a different play. And these characters basically show up and say, hey, we need you to act out our story so that we can exist, uh, which is a you know very postmodern and unsettling idea, but actually very much contextualized. And, and I think illuminated by this seemingly disparate adventure of Link wandering through Termina and, and putting on masks and donning the persona of Dharmani and Mikau and, and the other people he meets.
1: Your theoretical elaboration reminded me very much of Irving Goffman, which is a, is a sociologist that I very much admire,
2: mm.
1: who bases his entire idea of identity and the self on the enactment of various different roles and uh, I don't know. I think this the original title of one of his most famous books, "The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life." That's its original title, mm. but in German, in German actually, and that's how I got to know the book first. Was uh, is "Wir alle spielen Theater"? We're all playing theater mm. because mm. he he equivocates oh. the the entire life, the your, all the roles you take on in your life to basically what you would act out on a stage and how they all merge together to uh, and accumulate whatever sense of self you might have. This is, a, this is a super interesting theoretical perspective that I think we could talk a lot about.
2: I love that, Stefan, and uh, and I, I love it because I'll, I'll throw another German word back at you since we have, you know, a German and someone who speaks two words yes. of German on the podcast. <laughs> Gesamtkunstwerk. You know, this comes from Wagner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which is almost the theoretically diametrically opposed perspective on art. Wagner's whole idea and and the way he literally designed his opera houses was that art should be this distinct thing from the real world in which you are totally subsumed uh, while you are engaging with it. And I think to invert that idea and turn it on its head and say, yes, art is all consuming, but it's all consuming because it is actually reflective of what we do every day in the real world is a really cool and, and I think potentially empowering idea. So I love that. Which kind of game are you playing at the moment? Uh, well, uh, we'll chat more about the one at this literal moment uh, later on in the podcast, because it was one of the very formative ones to which I alluded in high school, but I just finished playing um, Nino Kuni 2, Revenant Kingdom, which was a long time coming. It didn't take me quite as long to finish as the first one, uh, and I have an article all about why the first one took me so long to finish and, and why I thought it was more than worthwhile uh, on With the Terrible Fate, uh, but... Yes, I, I was happy to get that one under my belt. It was a really interesting sequel. I'm a big JRPG fan, sucker for a good story.
1: I have an important question regarding Nino Kuni Two because I loved the first game. I have only seen the anime afterwards that pertains to the story of uh, Nino Kuni Two. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. And the anime I actually didn't find that good. Have you got a comparison there? Mm. Do I have to lower my expectations when I play the sequel?
0: I think Aaron and I will probably agree. The first one is a bit better than the second one, but I think that the second one has a lot of interesting things to offer and a lot of commentary on the first one that I find really enriching. So if you, if you liked the first one, I think it's worth playing.
2: I would agree with Dan there. What I would say Stefan is just in the brief conversations Dan and I have had about it already, um, and we could do a whole podcast episode on Nino Kuni and its sequel. The sequel is actually a really good example of a lot of the methodological approach that we take on With a Terrible Fate. And what I mean by that is this uh, when you first engage the game, especially if you've played the first one, it seems on the surface radically different um even just in mechanics and the way the world is structured the second one is much more of a traditional JRPG where you go around to different towns and build a party uh where each member comes from a different town and has their own backstory and this way it feels very different from the first game and so it can be superficially very challenging as a player to connect it to the first game but i think it's also an example of a game worth not taking at face value and asking the question of, okay, given that it's a sequel to the first game, how can we analyze and adjudicate these new elements in a way that makes it thematically consonant with the first game? And I think what I'm frankly still wrestling with, and I think is interesting and and worth playing it just for this, is that those seemingly very distinct elements in terms of how it tells its story and what constitutes its story, I think are actually just different storytelling vehicles for conveying different meditations on very similar themes to what you get in the first game. So in that way, I think it's it's a very proper sequel while also feeling very different, which is really all I look for in sequels of stories.
1: How about you, Dan? Do you want to go ahead and give us
0: your introduction? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, so Aaron and I, like he's alluded to, we've known each other for a very long time. Um, Almost a oh, decade, really. Yeah. And uh, we went to high school together and we actually met through theater. And so um we acted together and kind of worked in each other's plays that we would write for each other basically (laughs) and other people involved who happened to be there but um yeah we we sort of ran in all the same circles and then um my so video games have always been very important to me in a very personal sense in that um i always felt that they were a way um They were a way for me to understand things about myself that I couldn't put into words. It would be um, a way for me to have these experiences that I wouldn't otherwise have that I think um, gave me kind of my toolkit in a way to kind of talk about myself. And so naturally uh, when theater came along in high school, I think that had a very similar effect on me. So um, they were always kind of inextricably linked. And this idea of playing a role and what it means to sort of take on someone else's journey um, meant a great deal to me. So I put together a a project my senior year of high school um, in which I compared uh, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time uh, to Joseph Campbell's monomyth, The Hero's Journey. And it was really, it's funny, as all great endeavors are, it was almost an endeavor out of spite because (laughs) I had... uh, I had seen something on Roger Ebert's take on video games that they will never be art, and I just thought, how dare you say that to me, a person who has, you know, enjoyed these things? I've, I felt very personally attacked. But then I thought, well, let's not just attack Roger Ebert. Let's com- let's <laughs> construct an entire project. To prove that yes, this is not only artful, but it's very deeply important to a lot. Attack of Attack him with theory. Attack him with theory. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Take that. Eber. May he rest in peace. May he rest in peace. Um, <laughs> but um, so that was a that was a great um, sort of stepping stone for me and how I realized how I think about video games, and it became a very um, almost like an internal analysis reflecting back on myself whenever I would, I would think about a game. So um, that, and uh, I am a Japanese scholar. I went to school for um, really Japanese and religious studies. And so uh people would always ask me why did you study japanese and my answer eventually became distilled to i really liked video games <laughs> and i wanted to learn more about where they came from and the influence um that the language and the history of japan had on these games that i loved so much and i think that opened up a lot of avenues so you're going to hear uh dear listener a lot of sappy sentimental analysis from me because i take these things very seriously
1: um, i I'm very curious about that indeed, because I also, I intend to go to Japan next year to teach there for half a year at, uh, at a university. Yeah. It's not set in stone yet, but you know you know that I'm diligently studying Japanese every day. And yes. um, I'm very much interested in the, in the Japanese culture, specifically also the Japanese video game culture. And I'm so excited to do that and to feel how it is to actually be not only in Japan, but also to work at a university in Japan, because it might, I I don't know whether it is any, in any remote way close to how I imagine it to be, but I hope it's going to be cool and a precious experience.
0: I I always tell people Stefan that Japan is exactly what you think it is and not at all what you think it is. Um, I think it's really, um, and, and that's, what's so beautiful about it to me is that, um, when you look at something uh, that, that's come from that, from that country. Um, I think it's just this, uh, layers upon layers of analysis where you kind of realize things about yourself, you realize things about Japan, you realize things about the game that you're playing, and then it all circles back onto each other in this sort of beautiful infinite loop where you're just deepening your appreciation for all the disparate elements to it. So that's, that's why I studied Japanese largely is because, uh, video games meant so much to me. Dan, I want to ask you about uh, that idea you raised of the the value
2: and power of sentimentality, which does so permeate not only your engagement with Japan but also your engagement with video games, um, both colloquially and in terms of what you publish on them. Right? I mean, one of the things I was so excited about after with a terrible fate evolved from a blog to a publication was the opportunity to bring on people as analysts who had different perspectives on video games, but found their stories equally powerful and could see them in new lights and really just, I mean, that snowballed to bringing on analysts I'd never met before, but it started and was really special with, with people like you who I'd known forever and, and thought a lot of and in many ways inspired my own work. Right. And one of the things, uh, Really, one of the main things that you do for the site is you proposed and you run this whole article and analysis series called Now Loading the Video Game Canon which I, I love, I know it has a great following. Uh, it's also to me such an interesting study in how sentimentality can be linked up with what people think of as reviews of games and as well as analyses of games. And so I'd, I'd love you to speak a little bit just on how you think about that methodology and how it connects to your sentiments about gaming.
0: Yeah, well, um that now loading the video game canon uh, soon to be resurrected from the ashes series because I've I've uh, not not done too much on it recently. Um but it's always very near and dear to my heart and the idea what I pitched to Aaron when I cuz Aaron you had you had come to me um this was a few years ago now and you had said, you know, I'm really I, I'm looking to kind of expand things and I want to I want to get more analysts on, I want to sort of broaden the audience in a sense. And I said, well, I have this idea for, um, because I'm a YouTube junkie, um, I hear a lot of really uh, not so incredible reviews or, or critiques of video games. And I think that what I noticed over time is that there's this disconnection between um, between people, their experience, and then the the narrative, or the 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 book of the game, I guess you could call it, where they there's a lack of sort of mixing these elements, because I agree with people that your personal experience is very important to your understanding of the video game, but that's not all. It is there's also text that you have to look at. There's also music that's that's been composed very deliberately. There it's it's a filmic um, medium as well. There are shots that are composed. You can't just take one aspect of this medium and say, this is the mode through which I'm going to give you a holistic uh, review of the experience. So I'm not saying that I do that in every one of my Canon pieces, but I will say that I make a concerted effort to um, integrate my own personal experience with the game, as well as those sort of constructive elements that make the actual thing that you're looking at and experiencing. And I find that, um at least for me, it's a really great exercise in coming to terms with my understanding of a game and my experience with it by looking at it holistically. And what are you playing at the moment? I'm playing Dark Souls three at the moment. Um I think uh, we all come back to Dark Souls um at some in point. some way, shape, or form. Yep. Yeah. So, say, you're playing
2: Dark Souls three at every moment, man. Don't yes. act like you're not <laughs> <laughs> never far from Dark
0: Souls three. Yeah, this is I know it's a topic that we could again. Anything we bring up, we could talk about forever. So, um, just having a having a really fun time with it, and I feel like mm-hmm. there are certain games that are just sort of warm blankets that you can slip back into and kind of experience the world. And that's one of those for me, as, as masochistic as they as that may sound. So,
1: yeah, if I hadn't had the experience of playing Bloodborne quite intensively, then I would have probably raised my eyebrows at the statement. But having <laughs> experienced it firsthand, <laughs> like this from software formula. I can definitely relate because I love that game so much
0: as well and and the studio and pretty much everything they do. Well, I want to segue into this because um, one thing that Aaron uh, didn't mention about the website is that it has this incredible ability to draw um, people to us that we feel like we've known forever. So Stefan, with that, I would like to say we've only known you for a short while, but I feel like we have... Uh, very kindred spirits in this virtual room right now. So if you could introduce yourself, I'd like to hear more about you.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm very, very happy about that because I feel exactly the same way without being too sentimental now. (laughs) 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 Your story on what intrigues you about video games, Dan, very much resonated with me because I thought about it as well while you were telling your story, how I would explain why I'm so fascinated with video games. And what spontaneously came to my mind are two memories. One is when I was six years old and I was in hospital and I was kind of, you know, uh, it was a scary thing where you are away from your family, away from home in this sterile environment and there's not really anything to do. And my grandma back then, she gave me an old gray, chunky Game Boy as a present. (laughs) And that, that was the time when I realized that that video games are important to me as means of escapism.
0: Mm. And
1: the second memory that I have is roughly six years later uh, when I'm in middle school, I think, and um, it was not a great time, you know? I was kind of uh, a little bit more of an outside kid at that point that changed later on. But, you know, in the years, let's say, 12 to 14, that, that was a particularly tough time at school. And I played Final Fantasy VIII. And I the character of um, uh, Squall... Squall Leonard resonated so much with me that I found that it was not just escapism but it was also self-inquiry as in mm. I learned something about myself by playing that video game and that I think those were two crucial experiences that led me to then way later on in my life actually study video games <laughs> because yeah that's <laughs> that is what I did after being a nurse for a couple of years I went back to university and I decided that I'm going to study media studies. That's what I did. I have a bachelor's degree in media studies, a master's degree in media and cultural praxis. That's how it's called. Um, I've studied quite some philosophy, but I decided against doing a second master's degree. And instead, uh, I went ahead to work on my PhD. And yeah, at the moment, I am employed at the Phillips University in Marburg. That is roughly Roughly in the middle of Germany, and that is where I work, where I earn my bread and butter, and where <laughs> I teach. Yeah, <laughs> those are the those. That's how I make a living. I tell a lot of students about video games and teach them different analytical perspectives and
0: lenses on it. The dream, in other words. I have a question for you, but very, very quickly. I I don't know that I don't know if Aaron mentioned this before to you in private, but again, I talking about kindred spirits, our high school was called Phillips. And so that's where we met. So the fact that you, you know, are at a Phillips university, I think is, is, uh, a fun coincidence. Oh, there's
1: literally <laughs> everything is called Phillips here yes. in Marburg. We've got the Phillips <laughs> House together. It's everything's called Phillips. I don't know. I actually don't Same know in New why. England, really, I mean, it's a very medieval town. It's a small medieval town with an old city core, and the university really is its its beating heart because it's relatively small. I think. 80,000 inhabitants. I don't want to lie. Mm. 70 to 80,000 inhabitants. Pretty small town, but with a big university that's relatively well renowned. Um, so the student life is really the beating heart of the city, and I, I always hope and strive to inspire students to uh, be passionate and curious about video games. Because that's what I... Tr- I know that many people come into my classes and they think like, lol, video games at the university, I can play. You know? <laughs> and yes, uh, the good thing is I can I can say you can, because we have a game lab here where we have like pretty, a pretty stable lineup of equipment. I'm currently looking for another PS5 for a game lab and where students can play and they ought to play. But then I also want to encourage them to sit back to think about what they've just seen, what they've just experienced, what they've just felt, and what it means. Uh, this is basically the approach that I take to my classes.
2: Well, and it's so nice to see that. And, and I do think, thankfully, it's a trend in academia, especially in like undergraduate and, and bachelor programs nowadays. I was actually just talking with um, some faculty from UNC Chapel Hill the other week, and they've stood up a similar kind of game lab. I forget their name for it, uh, but one that's actually embedded within the English department, uh, which oh, I wow. just love because, you know, I mean, with a terrible fate is all about thinking about video games. As a storytelling medium, and to be able to talk with professors who you know have proper background in English and study literature and recognize the value of video games and want to create a means for seamlessly integrating that into classroom coursework, I, I think is just fantastic. We really are reaching the point where you know basically anyone who's paying attention has to recognize that artistic value of video games, but we're also past that. Roger Ebert conversation that you talked about, Dan, and and that I think a lot of the kind of last-gen video game analysts, so to speak, felt like they were compelled to respond to and just always take on this defensive stance with their work, arguing first that video games are art before they could actually talk about video games as art, right? And now I think we're in this wonderful position where we can take their artistic status as given and just inquire into what makes them function as artworks and what makes them so valuable. And it's, it's just great to see you being a part of that.
1: At least within the field, if I venture beyond the domain of media studies, I do realize that there are, a lot of people who still um, need that Roger Ebert Ebert uh, conversation first.
0: Sort of foundation.
1: That's what I, I encounter that quite a lot. Like a lot of people that I tell about my job, they're even surprised that such a thing exists. Like, what do you mean? You, what do you, what? what? You study video <laughs> games, you know, how is that <laughs> possible? But uh, within the, the field of media studies that I come from, which I have always uh, significantly merged with sociological and philosophical aspects. Like this is the kind of, this would be the kind of like headline of the first class that I taught five or six years ago, I think, um, an introduction to philosophical and political perspectives on video games. It is relatively, relatively established. After all, we sit down, we watch movies together, and then we talk about them and we analyze them and try to understand their cultural significance. So why not video games?
0: Absolutely. Well put.
2: Stefan, you're, when speaking about your own work, uh, you know I, I'm sure we'll dig more into this uh, on a later podcast episode. But I'd love if you could give a little pitch for what you're working on in your PhD, because I find it just fascinating.
1: Yeah, I'm wor- my I think the the work in progress title for now is going to be Pixelated Madness.
0: Excellent title, by the way.
1: Thank you very much. I've love actually <laughs> I've actually borrowed it from a good colleague of mine. Um, we're working very closely together and he's been the one who also inspired inspired me to dive deeper into this uh, topic. Um, I'm, I'm glad, I'm, I hope that we can have him on the show sometime soon as well. I have, I've been always intrigued by constructions of oppression, of social conflict, you know, gender and age and what class, all these crucial distinctions that either divide us or bring us together as a society. And the current aspect that I'm focusing a lot on is madness, which is, you know, I'm using it as a bit more broad, broadly conceptualized term, but for the sake of simplicity, we can just uh, equivocate it with mental illness for now. And I am looking at how, for example, uh, horror asylums are constructed in video games. The horror asylum as a trope, and I want to, that a key point of my PhD project is not just to say it's stigmatizing and bad. Well, you know, it is stigmatizing for the most, for what it's <laughs> worth, it is stigmatizing and it is problematic if the psychiatric discipline has such a negative reputation that people are actually uh, refraining from seeking help, even though it would benefit them greatly. That is a problem. And I I want to definitely acknowledge that in my PhD. But at the same time, I want to go further and think about what does such a trope like the horror asylum mean for our culture, for our cultural uh, memory. My thesis here would be that this trope is something that confronts us with past injustices that we have committed, and when I say we, I mean, not the three of us, but the, the entirety of the culture. <laughs> we know, <laughs> I, <laughs> we know
0: <I> <laughs> <The> culture. It's <laughs> only the
2: first episode. They can't get to know us that intimately
1: yet. <laughs> we won't admit to anything yet. I'm not saying anything without my voice.
2: <laughs> Stay tuned. But it is definitely the case that
1: uh, people who, I'm going to say, suffer from mental illness or have been diagnosed with mental illness, suffered a lot of injustices um, and also at the hand of people who were ought to help them and who were ought to, to treat them. And I think that this is kind of a, it is a kind of social self-inquiry and a very functional trope that reminds us of these injustices. And that's only one aspect. It's not my entire PhD is is, is much broader, obviously, but it's one
0: example that I can briefly bring out here to illustrate. It's so fascinating to me for so many reasons, and we got to pick your brain uh, about it as you continue, and I think it may be worth it to have a little, you know, every every couple of episodes a check in segment. Like, can we just hear you talk about this? Because I think it's 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 so it's so fascinating to me, and it's one of those things that um, I know I know all three of us very much enjoy. It's one of those things that um, you you may not have thought about it too intently, but as soon as someone explains it, like Stefan just did. You think, of course, of course, this is something that is happening. I, I we need to look at what this means and what what this, the implications of it are. And so, Stefan, I can't wait to hear you know how that progresses with you because it's it's one of the coolest things I've heard <laughs> in in video game literature.
2: And to tease it ahead of time, uh, I, I, as we three know, Stefan is also working on a version of this as an article for With a Terrible Fate. So. We and our listeners and readers will be able to enjoy that in the near future. I'm very excited about that.
1: Yes, that is definitely a cool thing. I've been publishing quite a lot of articles recently. I actually have someone – I'm taking somewhat of a break for the time being now after the With a Terrible Fate article because I need to really focus on that PhD. You know, it, it's it's not going <laughs> to write itself. It's yeah. uh, it, it just it's wonderful to publish so much. And I've, like, published a book recently and i published so many different articles and journals and stuff. By now, I just need to really sit down and for a year properly focus on that PhD. I'm actually getting words on the page. I've got my theory part pretty much done, and now the analysis come in. It's going to be super interesting. And also, some maybe a last thing that I would like to mention regarding self introduction. We've already alluded to that briefly, but this is not my first podcast project. I actually had a podcast. Question. Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I actually had a podcast called Pixel Discourse, which was a German a uh, podcast about video game studies and video game culture. It ran from 2016 to 2021. In March 2021, actually, we just... It's unbelievable, but we actually just stopped a month ago, a good month ago, with Pixel Discourse. We had our last episode, over 230 episodes in total. And um, it was just a point where um, I had been thinking about the possibility of doing something similar like something like Pixel Discourse, but more like on an international level. And well, I guess uh, as coincidence would have it, I think it was Aaron, you who contacted me because I had spoken about an article of yours on our show. And that's how the stone got rolling.
2: Yeah, that's right. You, uh, you found, I think, if memory serves, one of my articles on Final Fantasy VII Remake talking about the way it uses trophies, in my view, as a mode of intertext. Uh, And thanks to the magic that is online analytics, I was able to track Pixel Discourse down (laughs) and use my uh, extremely rusty German to get half an idea of what you guys were about. And then I, uh, as, as Dan said, I mean, the great thing about doing this kind of work as well, you do sometimes still have to explain it to to people outside the world of video games. I think when you find other people who are discussing it, uh, it's almost always a kindred spirit. And so we were able to connect and uh, the rest is history in the making.
0: And I know, I know I speak for Aaron when I say, I'm, I'm so happy that you're joining us on this podcast Stefan, because that's such a a cool accomplishment with pixel discourse. And I think that um, to have you on board here is you know, we're over the moon about it, so.
2: Is there anything you'd like to say to any Pixel Discourse listeners who may be out there in the audience, Stefan?
1: Hello, I'm back.
2: (laughs) 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 I've actually,
1: actually, the interesting thing is, you know, we were were off for, uh, I was basically off air for one month not because it was it was a weekly podcast as well. Pixel discourse was, and now in this in this month where I wanted to take a break, I, I think I took two weeks of a break. But then I was on other shows. <laughs> where <I> was, <laughs> where I was then? Where, I was, where I was then invited as a guest? So basically, I've I've really not been away much. But I do hope that there are lots of people who've been listening to Pixel Discourse before and who are going to enjoy this show very much as well, because. Ultimately, what we're doing here will be some kind of uh, amalgamation, Uh, a conceptual inspiration from pixel discourse built on the foundation of, uh, of what With a Terrible Fate is. And maybe we've alluded to it a couple of times, maybe Aaron, just briefly, what is With a Terrible Fate, like the elevator pitch of With a Terrible Fate?
2: Yeah, I'm extremely proud of what we've built on With a Terrible Fate so far and what we're continuing to build. I really do think we're designing a new language for talking about video games and a new method for engaging with them. Uh, and I take that really seriously. And it's it's been a pleasure to really see it, I, I think, help contribute to the medium and conversation in a positive way uh, over the years. And I hope it continues to in the future. There are really two things uh, that are really special to me about it that I'd would call out as features. One is that we're one of the only publications or just bastions of conversation you can find uh, that treat video games exclusively as a mode of storytelling, the storytelling object. I think that's actually really important. Um, There are many things that video games can be, right? They can be you know, a mode of competition, a mode of distraction and exploration and architecture and environments and all of those things can be valuable, right? But in terms of analysis and evaluative standards, I think that when you are not clear about the function according to which you're evaluating an object, your evaluation of it can be at best muddled and at worst totally incoherent, right? That's nothing to do with video games. That's just a comment on analysis. You can think of it- um, Just general thinking tips. This (laughs) this is just how to think. No, but uh, but to use an actual example, so you know I'm not just talking nonsense, right? Uh, A really useful one that I like to use uh, when we talk at conventions like PAX about this, right? Is um, you can think of a knife, Right, and there are different kinds of knives, right? You know, some you use in the kitchen, for example, for for cutting things, and some are ceremonial knives that are used in, in rituals, right? Uh, and if you're thinking about a ritual knife, you might want it to be really delicate and ornamental, and maybe not even especially sharp, so as to mitigate the risk of accidentally hurting yourself during the ritual, right? So for it to be dull and delicate might make it really great as a ritualistic or ceremonial knife, but that same knife by virtue of being dull and frail is not going to be great as a means of cutting as a kitchen knife, right? So the very same quality of that object is going to be totally different in terms of its meaning and value to the object based on the function according to which you're evaluating it. And I think you see that same problem manifest all the time in discourse about video games, especially I think in the culture of reviews that we have, right? Where um, the people who write for many popular publications reviewing games are under pressure just to give them a generic score and talk about all of their different attributes as if they can be summed up to a single number and just talk about the overall quality of the game, uh, which I think sounds really nice in the abstract until you actually sit down and think about it for two seconds and encounter the kind of issue I was just talking about. right? So there are many different ways according to which you can analyze video games. We really love them as stories on the site, and that's the way according to which we evaluate them in any conversation that we're having. right? Now, the other pillar of our methodology that I think is equally compelling and valuable to me is, as I mentioned before, right? I come from an academic background in philosophy. I've been published academically on the subject of the philosophy of video game storytelling, right? Stefan, you're still embedded in academia. I have a lot of love for academia, but one of the interesting things that I found working in academia and analyzing video games in that context is while the analytical standards and rigor are really great for drilling deep into the content of video games, oftentimes, and, and I think this is broadly true in academia, You know, academics will study really specific niches of topics or subject matter uh, that are part of a conversation or dialectic within the academic realm that doesn't always translate into the public realm in terms of its general meaning or value, right? And in terms of video games, that meant that, you know, as I was learning about video games and diving into video game scholarship for the first time as a student, I oftentimes found myself wondering like, well, you know, it's it's really encouraging to see that academics are studying this stuff, but what difference does this article really make to me as a gamer when I sit down and play these games? And that felt to me like a kind of failure where there could be academic analysis that doesn't actually change the way that the people who love these games are engaging with them. But I also felt like the academic rigor was important because when you look at reviews that are just all wishy-washy and all over the place and don't think about issues like the fixing the function of the video game like I was just talking about, it can be hard to glean any argument or insight from them at all sometimes. And so what we try to do on With the Terrible Fate is bridge that gap uh, and fill that gap as well, basically bringing the analytical standards of academia and especially philosophy, just because that's my particular background in terms of logic and argumentation, to the analysis of video games, but to analyze them and take on topics and arguments that will make a difference to the gamer who is actually playing these games so that By the time they have left the article, they have an illuminating and new and valuable perspective, either on a particular video game or on video games in general. That's our goal with every single article, every single talk, every single podcast we publish. And so I hope that you can feel confident that anytime you pick up anything that has with the terrible fate stamp on it, you can know that by the time you're done with it, you will have something valuable to you as a gamer who loves the stories of these games.
1: Yeah, we'll contribute to that in this new show as well on a weekly basis, every Sunday. And I very much uh, enjoy this or appreciate this this perspective of bringing in uh, an understanding of academic analysis and a theoretical background that aids in analysis, but ultimately also speaking to, yeah, everyone. I mean, that's the idea, to keep the conversation open, to keep it inclusive, to invite people in. And I think this uh, podcast might very well be a great avenue to do so. Um, so what you can expect out there from this show is a couple of main stories. Every show that we do has one main story. And that main story pertains in some way to the significance of video games as a form of storytelling. It can be an analysis of a specific, specific elements of a story or a story arc. For example, we've been pondering um, whether the ending of Mass Effect 3 is consonant or dissonant with the rest of the story. Um, it can be discussions of controversial issues pertaining to video games as a storytelling medium, such as the moral implications of scalping. We've been talking about that off-air for quite a bit, and we might bring it on the com- uh, on the show as well. It can be interviews that we include on this show, interviews with academics, with journalists, with people from the industry, obviously with other people who contribute to With a Terrible Fate and might join this, this uh, weekly podcast crew. Also... Two things maybe that are particularly interesting for people who are either involved in academic video game studies discourse or who want to be or are interested in getting a glimpse into it. We also intend to do something like reading circles where we sit down and we unravel, let's say, essential game studies literature from the field of game studies. But we want to talk about them in a way that is approachable and that helps us reflect on 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 video game discourse, basically. This is something that, well, we have to, we have more to announce soon, coming, more information coming soon. (laughs) And uh, other things that we might also do uh, pertain more to, you know, service for people who want to study video games, such as, you know, how can I analyze a video game story for presentation or term paper? I can also bring a lot of experience from me uh, teaching, teaching game studies. So this is basically the idea that we have a main story. Our introduction that we did just now was basically our very first main story. However, we don't want to leave it at that because we also want to broaden the perspective a little bit, keep it conversational, keep it organic. And that's why in every show, the second half is going to be filled with side quests. As side quests, we define, it could be... or. side side quests we understand contemporary articles and debates or anecdotal impressions from video games or really anything that is on our mind and that we do think is important that we want to talk about it and maybe that is uh, the perfect uh, ramp to leap into some side quests right
2: yes let's do it
1: So what is your side quest, Dan? What's the nice thing you
0: brought? Yes, well, I was, uh, as I often am, I was just scrolling on my phone and um, all of my alerts are set to video games and, and video game news. And so I found this um, very recent article in the Washington Post written by Gene Park um, that I I hesitate to call a review of Returnal because he uh, says in the first line, I can't call this a review. Um, this this was an interesting thing that popped up on my radar because uh, the headline of it is I'm struggling with Returnal and I play Dark Souls to relax. And uh, personally, I found you know the article it's it's more or less a uh, a review on whether or not you should purchase this game Returnal based on this person's experience with it, which I think has its place in video game discourse. You know, we talked earlier about. Um, aggregate reviews on something like Metacritic or like an IGN, and they have their purpose. I think, right? If you if you calibrate yourself to those particular um, retail reviews, you know who you trust and who you don't with what you how you want to purchase video games. But this one didn't grab me because of that. It grabbed me because of the use of Dark Souls in the title, which one of the things on With a Terrible Fate that we talk about a lot is the shorthand that we use in video game. Um, discourse. These are things like, um, immersion, um, or game feel. We've talked about a number of these on our sort of proto podcast. And one of them that we didn't really ever get to was X is the dark souls of X and how dark souls has become shorthand for, I mean, a number of things I think, but difficulty first and foremost, right. Or, or hard to penetrate storytelling or, um, frustration or masochism in video games. And so, um, I just thought that even, even a publication like the Washington Post has Dark Souls as something that the readers are expected to understand its broader meaning for. Um, and the article goes on to basically just describe um, this person, Gene Park's experience with this game Returnal, saying that, um, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like this. It's a little bit like uh, you know, a roguelike, it's like Hades, a recent game as well. And as I continued reading it, I just realized that there is so much, as Aaron said off mic earlier, jargonism in this article, where it sort of presupposes that you are going to know what this person is talking about when he throws out these terms. Um, and I think that there's a, there's a place for that. So maybe the retail review is the place for that. But it frustrates me when I see these kinds of shorthand terms being used in um, analytical descriptions of video games, because it just assumes that you are using the same definition that this person is. So clearly for Gene Park, Dark Souls, well, okay, I won't even say clearly, because for Gene Park, Dark Souls may mean difficult, but he also says, I play Dark Souls to relax which would mean to me that this is a game he is very familiar with. And so difficulty is not necessarily a component of his enjoyment of the game. And so for him to still use that as a shorthand for the difficulty of Returnal, you kind of see I'm in this weird circular logic, you know, bafflement over here on what this guy actually thinks about this game. He ends it with a, um, you know, a recommendation to purchase if you like these kinds of games, or if you like difficulty or roguelikes, genre
1: fans can can purchase
0: the game. Yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> so I think again, I, does it serve its its purpose as a as a, maybe a call to action for this game? Um, maybe, but I think it it made me think about the the words and terms that we use when we're discussing uh, video games or reviewing them. In a broader sense,
2: I think it's also it's it's a really good case study for why we harp on specificity of the phrases that we use and the definitions of words like immersiveness or difficulty uh, in our conversations about video games. Um, and, and anecdotally, basically every time an analyst comes on for the first time and tries to tell me a game is immersive, I will tell them either in a comment or conversationally, I don't know what you're talking about. You need to be more specific. Uh, and that's not to be you know needlessly um, academic or anal about it or something like that. It's because these terms, especially when they're used, as you say, Dan, as a shorthand, can develop multiple meanings without our even realizing it. And that can make it materially difficult to understand what the argument that's being made is, uh, or even to track what if anything is being said, right? I really felt that in this review, uh, like we were talking a little bit before off mic about uh, in terms of how the author refers to the concept of Dark Souls, because you're right, he introduces the idea of Returnal's difficulty as consonant with Dark Souls. But as you said, it's, it's not even necessarily that clear that he finds Dark Souls difficult. And then the thing that was really interesting and challenging to me is that when he got to the storytelling of the game, he seemed to throw Dark Souls out the window and just decide that it was more appropriate to compare it with the storytelling of Hades that's really weird to me and based on you know the the lack of specificity around dark souls and these concepts that he's using i have difficulty adjudicating that right because something that at least in dark souls goes hand in hand with difficult uh, combat and gameplay is difficulty of story in the sense of story being hard to access not immediately obvious and just very different from the kind of storytelling that happens in Hades right and so for the author to compare the game up front to Dark Souls then admit that he didn't get through that much of it and then seemingly knock its story for not being immediately accessible and engaging in the way that a totally different game with a totally different mode of storytelling is (laughs) leaves me a little adrift
0: what are we to make of that it's just a little kind of all over the place, right, for someone who – I think I think for me it's strange because um, these references to other games, like it, later in the article too, he compares it to um, Metroid Prime. He says that other people are comparing it to Metroid Prime um, in the sense that it's a, quote, lonely woman on an alien planet. Um, but then he goes on to say, I even thought of the Shinji Mikami GameCube exclusive pno 3 a long forgotten Capcom shooting game and one of the industry's earliest attempts to translate the shoot em up experience in three dimensions. And I just think that if your if your mode of reviewing something is to compare it to things that people may know about, to reach into these, you know, sort of far, far and away. Uh, just sort of discrete items that people reading the Washington Post, like I don't know how many people reading a Washington Post article see Shinji Mikami and think, "Oh yes, I know his entire body of work. I understand entirely what you're talking about." You know, it's just it's it's a strange way to write a recommendation to to purchase something, and I think that to me. It just speaks to the broader problem that I have with how we write about video games in any sense.
1: The only question that I want to know that I want the answer to is, is it the Citizen Kane of video games?
0: Yes.
2: If only he would say this. (laughs) Boy, this is really the Dark Souls of a review, huh?
0: Yeah. Returnal really (laughs) makes you feel like Batman. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well
1: honestly i am honestly curious about about returnal actually i thought about yeah. purchasing even purchasing it just today and instead i went with disco elysium but mm-hmm. uh, but really i'm i'm surprised that he doesn't compare it to the previous housemark games does he not do that
2: he
0: does yeah he does say um he talks about their legacy like, in bullet hells <laughs> so again right. very yeah. Obliquely. Yeah. so again he's instead of instead of reaching directly to you know a, a particular title from House Mark. He goes instead to a, a long forgotten Shinji Mikami game. So uh, just a strange choice. Um, again, I, I said, I set off, Mike, I don't I, I usually have kind of visceral reactions to articles that I find, and I'm sure I will have more articles to bring where I'm a little more vocally angry or confused by something that somebody writes. This one didn't necessarily do that to me. I just thought it was interesting. Um, the use of language and the use of reference. In this sort of esoteric way, that I don't, I don't know who this is for. I guess that when I read this article, I, I don't know who the audience is.
1: On the other hand, it is interesting that he that he does that in the context of the Washington Post, where usually this is this is a kind of uh, I, I'm going to say reference management that you would maybe expect from a, a, a classical video game review outlet, where they assume that you basically have just read through the entire magazine and there are
0: reviews on all of these games in there as well. Yeah, um, So it is interesting. That is interesting on its that it appears in the Washington Post and not, um, I don't know, like a Kotaku or something like that. Aaron, what have you brought to the table? Huh. I have brought a reflection
2: on the game that I am currently playing through, uh, as I alluded to earlier in this podcast, which is the... <sighs> I don't know the right term for it yet because I haven't finished it, whether you would call it a remake or a remaster or an updated version.
0: I can tell you what Yoko Taro has explicitly called it. Yeah. Yeah. An upgraded version.
2: Upgraded version. Alright, let's let's use Yokotaro's verbiage for it then. The upgraded version of Near Replicant, uh, which in, in classic Yokotaro fashion, uh, was one of two different versions of the same game that was a spin-off to one of I if I remember right at least 5 endings from Dragon Guard and originally published in 2010 uh and known for most people not for any of those reasons but by virtue of its uh superficially confusingly related sequel Near Automata uh which was published in 2017 <laughs> um and the complexity of that uh, for listeners who are not aware really just scratches the surface of this particular franchise this is also a franchise that spans novelettes and booklets and diaries and stage plays much of which has never made it out of japan to date um so it's just, it's it's the wild legacy of someone whom Dan and I have previously discussed as one of the true auteurs uh, whom we're blessed to have in video game storytelling, where tour for listeners who aren't familiar, is, is a term that actually comes from film studies referring to directors who architect their work in such a way that it feels as though it's coming from the perspective of a singular creative entity, uh, like like an author in a novel, right? Yeah. Yoko Taro. Yoko Taro
0: is the French new wave <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) 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 There it is. That's
2: the poll quote. Yoko Taro is the French new wave of video games.
1: The Jean-Luc Godard of video games.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's funny though, because this particular game, for all of the weirdness that I just described about it, um, it's so personally meaningful to me for a much simpler reason. Uh, so, we talked when I was introducing myself about how I discovered video games as a mode of analysis in high school. And, you know, I was someone who grew up playing video games the way that other people read novels or watch films. I, I've always loved them for their stories. And that's in large part why that's still at the heart of With a Terrible Fate. But I remember being in high school, and this this is not quite yet a blockbuster style throwback because GameStop still exists, but we're almost to that territory. But back, back in high school, like eight years or so ago, uh, it was still at that point where I would frequent my local GameStop and look at their selection of used games, right? And so I remember distinctly as I was going through my later years of high school and starting to think more seriously about my studies, I would go into GameStop, uh, like every week or couple of weeks. And there was always this one used game for the Xbox 360. It was near uh, what is more fully known as near Gestalt, which is kind of the, the other version of this game, which was the only one we had um, in English until this uh, updated version of near replicant. And if you haven't seen the cover art for this game, I encourage you to look it up because it's, it's very impenetrable it's just an image of the protagonist and the supporting characters it seems very mysterious and you turn the box over and it's very nondescript it just says enter a world where nothing is as it seems um kind of promising this mystery but not saying anything about it which is to me even more of just this Special revelation in the trailer and teaser culture and oversaturation that we live in nowadays, right? I knew next to nothing about this game, except what was on the box. And I would go in every couple weeks and think about it uh, and never really take the dive to purchase it. And then eventually I sucked it up and decided, okay, I'm going to do this. Uh, And I bought this game, not knowing what I was getting myself into. And I I don't want to talk about the content of it because if, if you haven't played this game before, you really owe it to yourself to do so. This is the perfect time because this upgraded version just came out. It's, and it's, it's truly an amazing experience, but it was really what inspired me to undertake this project, looking at modes of identity formation in video games and theater, because it's this game that layer after layer pulls you in and demands that you ask these questions of identity and who you are as a player and who this avatar is, whom you thought you knew so well, but you realize you actually don't. Um, And it's it's this fascinating puzzle box. I I think in the way, you know, Jan, uh, excuse me, Dan, the Japanese Zen scholar, can corroborate me here. But it's almost like a koan, right? This like impenetrable puzzle where the longer you think about it, the more insight you glean. Um, And it, it really was in the first place what inspired me to take video games as something meriting analysis which was so special and changed my life but it's also something that i i think as is the case for most of us with one game or another has stuck with me and changed in context over the years since then uh, dan I, I don't know if you did, well I'm, I'm sure you do remember because i i shared near with you that was actually you lent the, it to me yeah it was one of the first games that i lent you exactly from my collection to play um and i loved that because you know i actually did that both with you and with somebody else whom I knew at the time and I actually later gave a speech reflecting on this because I thought what was so cool about doing that uh, and a testament to the game was that I played it and I lent this game to two of my best friends, and we all got totally different things from that game. And so I was able to learn about myself, how much I loved unraveling and analyzing these puzzles. I learned about you, Dan. I mean, the, the really cool thing about Near Gestalt, um, at least across one dimension, is how much it focuses on this father-daughter relationship. And that was the first time you and I really talked about how how meaningful that kind of relationship was to you. Uh, so it really became, for me also, this cornerstone of how games can be a mode of of better understanding people whom you you previously thought you knew really well, but see different aspects of them, right? And then when Near Automata came out in twenty seventeen, I mean it ended up being one of the formative games for me to to think about applying my actual uh, more theoretical framework for how player interaction works in video games so i'm working through the upgraded version of near replicant right now uh i hope to maybe at some point chat uh with some listeners who are playing through it about it uh talk with you guys more at length about it uh in another podcast but uh all of that is just as as a celebration to this game that i think is is Truly, I, I said something about this on Twitter, but one of the greatest works of literature uh, in the last decade, I don't say that lightly. I think that's really the case. I think you owe it to yourself to play it if you are interested in modes of storytelling, in video games, uh, in identity, in anything in between. And I hope you do. And uh, I just want to thank Yoko Taro on the air for being the madman that he is and uh, continuing to create these artworks that are, are really just Without peers, uh, in my opinion, yeah. have
0: a pint or six on us, Yoko. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: brought a brief article to the table. It is called "The Industry of Landlords: Exploring the Assetization of the Triple A Game," written by Alexander Berneviga and Alex Gecker, published in the journal Games and Culture. They start off with the thought that AAA games follow a, what they call, premium strategy. The term AAA is, this is something that I actually was not aware of, originally stems from the highest mark of credit rating that you can get. It might be that because I'm from Germany and credits credit here is much less important in daily life as it is, for example, in the US, you know, uh, credit cards. Even, I don't even, I don't have a credit card, you know. <laughs> I don't have a credit card. (laughs) This basically means in the context of the credit rating that you get a a triple A on your credit if it is highly likely that you will return this credit. And in its adaptation and gaming culture, they say, quote, what it essentially stands for are games with large teams, larger budgets, and largest prospective returns aimed at selling the highest possible number of final products to recoup the astronomical investment. Games as commodities, end quote. However, in recent years, games have increasingly turned into games as a service, right? Which is a pretty established term in video game discourse these days. Ongoing services that deliver continuous updates and a steady revenue flow. At least that is the hope of every publisher and developer. It is totally in line with a much larger uh, cultural and economic development that we see, which is that our entire life is pervaded by streaming services, by video on demand, by subscriptions. So you could say that contemporary economy and culture are deeply imbued and also formed by such a subscription service. And this transformation they refer to as assetization, quote, the transformation of things into resources which generate income without a sale, end quote. This is a a quote, by the way, by Birch. The the difference is that commodities need to be sold. For example, when you put out a Spider-Man game, um, then you might be in the situation that you want to do a sequel because at a certain point, the Spider-Man game has been purchased by everyone who's interested in it. It's been sold off the shelf, but now what do you do if you want to continue making money from that franchise, you need to invest a lot of money to make a new game, a sequel that builds on this, and you need to sell this again, you need to market it again. It's quite a lot of effort that goes into this. and with the change that we are observing or that Berniviga and Gekka are describing, they basically say that it works similar to, these games as a service work similar to the housing market where publishers and developers generate these live services, games that operate in order for you to, as a player to pay rent. And this rent can be paid in microtransactions, it can be DLC, it can be cosmetics, It can also be a subscription fee, which is also pretty common. But most interestingly, it can even be the case that you can play a game completely for free, free to play game. You don't have to do any financial transaction, but obviously they collect your data. Your data is also a form of payment in that sense, a way to pay the rent, so to speak, because developers and publishers can then either sell on the data or they can use it to optimize their systems. And it's not so much about the individual's data. It's not so much about how you specifically play, but obviously in the concept of big data, it's all about abstraction and putting it into, like uh, accumulating it into larger patterns that you can gain knowledge from. Another way of doing so is also showing people advertisements. So if you finish your Candy Crush level, then you just need to watch an advertisement and you can continue with the next one. Obviously also a way to pay the rent. This is an economically very attractive strategy. berne and Gekka illustrate this on three major AAA publishers that have shifted gears in recent years to release free-to-play games. Epic with Fortnite, EA with Apex Legends, and Activision with... Call of Duty Warzone, and what's particularly interesting about these examples, I'm not going to go too deep now into the analysis, but the particularly interesting aspect of it is that they all rely on a system called the Battle Pass, which everyone who has ever played Fortnite is absolutely familiar with. They describe it in a quite comprehensive, uh, comprehensive way. Here's how they describe Battle Pass. Battle Pass purchases grant the player access to a limited time tiered progression system with additional in-game rewards. Both the rewards and the battle pass itself are tied to seasons, timeframes during which the most substantial gameplay and content updates are introduced, usually lasting around 10 weeks. A tiny ellipsis here. The purchase of a battle pass can be viewed as a form of economic rent because it is purchased regularly to access the fuller or quicker game experience, consisting of a stream of additional rewards. So battle passes are basically subtle incentives because either you can as a player grind for in-game currency in order to purchase such a battle pass. If you do that, if you grind to purchase the battle pass with in-game currency, then you're generating data, you may watch advertisements, you spend time on the platform. So it's also good for the publisher or developer. Or you can instead just simply take out your credit card that I don't have And purchase this (laughs) battle pass with actual money. (laughs) And concluding, Bernevega and Gecka, they they do not assume that premium AAA productions will disappear, which is obviously something that has been talked about in the last few years quite a lot. Will this free-to-play model basically completely eradicate this uh, premium model of AAA video games? And they say that is relatively unlikely to happen but rather we should expect that these two modes on the one hand the commodification of video games and on the other hand their assetization will continue to merge as we see triple a games including microtransactions subscriptions you know season passes and on the other hand we see these free to play games produced with a high budget by let's say triple a tier publishers and
0: developers this was such a, a great find because it's one of those things where as as it was laid out in the article, um, it was like scales were falling from my eyes a little bit and I kind of came to understand, oh yes, it really is these two modes now. And I think I could I could say a million things on this, but I'd, I just want to limit myself to one. It reminds me very much of the difference between if we take if we go back a few decades, the difference between television as a mode of storytelling and movies. As a mode of storytelling movies are much like the the games that are not set up this way in the sense that they are uh one sort of it's they should be anyway self-contained right keeping marvel out of the equation for now you know a movie is it's a setup it's a payoff and it's a sort of a discrete object where you can say that's two hours and that's done television is designed Um, not only about that, but with movies, it's designed to, we pay a certain amount to make the movie. We expect to get a certain amount back and then a certain amount on top of that television exists to perpetuate itself indefinitely. So, um, similarly with these battle passes, I mean, it's like, you're sitting down and watching television where it's all about how many ads are shown, or it's all about how much, um, subscription fees to maybe cable services you pay. So I just think that both are, both have some potential for really great uh, narratives and storytelling um, opportunities. But I do feel that the, the TV or the battle pass model, I think that most people who play video games do get a sense of like insidiousness from it. And I think this article is a really great uh, explanation as to why.
2: I think to me, this was really an interesting find because it felt like it was speaking to me directly in terms of pulling together my very disparate interests in video games, but also storytelling, but also digital assets, but also the housing market, which is hard to do (laughs) in one article. You
1: actually... I thought of you when I read that article. I'm yeah. sure
2: you did, you <laughs> sly dog. Um, but <laughs> That last one's the
0: hardest one to get in there. <laughs> I
2: know. Um, let's work backwards, though, because I think this is all really interesting. Um, with the talk of battle passes, uh, this is not, well, maybe some people would call this video games. I wouldn't call this video games as such, but one of the other modes of gaming that really interests me is... Um, is the mode of collectible trading card games, right? As, as Dan will tell you, uh, maybe a little bit too much. I have an addiction, please help me. Uh, no, but fine. Keep it one, of, <laughs> uh, one of the really interesting like, case studies of the battle pass for me is what Wizards of the Coast has been doing with Magic the Gathering, because you know that started out as a physical trading card game. Thank God it still is. But one of the things that they've been moving into in the last couple of years and putting a huge emphasis on is Magic as an eSport. Right. They've moved it to an all digital mode magic arena, which you can play on your computers, on your phone. And it has all the hallmarks of this different mode of engagement that this article and you are talking about, Stefan, where there's everything from battle passes to, you know, pay to win to all the recurring revenue streams that um, I I think you're right, Dan. A lot of people think are insidious. Right. and I'm, I'm so thankful that they haven't decided to be all digital because it's, it's so nice to me in contrast and illustrates the great divide between the two modes to be able to just buy physical cards and own them and do whatever you want with them. Uh, as someone who outside of video games comes from the digital asset space, I can tell you one of the great aspects of the modern interest in blockchain technologies is people's growing awareness that in cases like... Like Magic Arena and similarly centralized games with seemingly digital assets like trading cards that you digitally have, if you don't own those in a provable way where you can take them and move them wherever you want, those are not your assets. Wizards of the Coast could, in principle, take those digital cards and representations away from you at any time, right? Uh, And it's interesting because perhaps for this exact reason, and this might be part of where the industry is going, Hasbro, like just last week, was in the news for considering moving at least some of its gaming enterprises, including Magic the Gathering, towards what are called non-fungible tokens, which are basically, um, you know, if you haven't heard that term in the news in the recent months, uh, a a blockchain-based way of having things like digital trading cards that you actually do own and can do whatever you want with right they so, cannot be funged a, they will not be funged um, so i think it's it's a really interesting case study in how we value or don't value the ownership of aspects of our gaming life um, and how we want to be able to engage with them right uh, on the housing front right one thing that i didn't say when i was introducing myself is that uh, when i'm not analyzing video games the thing i do actually as as a day job is put together a startup that is basically trying to change the paradigm of home ownership for this exact reason you're right and it's a fascinating analogy to video games that so many people especially in the states are trapped in and can like perpetually further being relegated to perpetual renterhood where the notion of owning the place where you live is just Laughably out of reach, which I think is is a huge just social travesty, right? But I think one of the interesting aspects of what we're trying to do at my startup Quarter uh, and and what I think similar companies even in other spaces are doing is that you know there are alternative models that you can innovate that are profit-driven and generate revenue and everything that you'd be naive to think doesn't matter because that's just that's the business side of how these industries work, but are designed in more forward-thinking ways that actually efficiently generate revenue through models that are more conducive to the good of everyone and can actually facilitate things like ownership for the people who value these assets and are living in them, right? so i think there's there's an interesting analogy there too between what we're doing in housing and what could be the future of video games right because to my last point in terms of how this dovetails with with my interest in video game storytelling you know one of the um, talks that we've given at PAX before and, and there's an article you can check out on with the terrible fate about this called the Philosophical Justification for From Software's DLC is the question of how these very similar issues pertain specifically to the question of DLC, right? Because that similarly to free-to-play games and, and the other topics that we've mentioned can seem initially insidious as something that is just a cash grab and there are often DLCs where that is very insidious, right? Where it seems like part of the game was just chopped off from the original release so that then developers can slyly trick players into pl- paying more in order to get the full story, right? I'm not pointing at Final Fantasy 15 right now, but I think I just pointed at Final Fantasy 15 right now. Uh, <laughs> but but the really cool and I think re- like optimistic face of this is that even as that is happening, there are studios out there um, and publishers out there, like from software, and madmen out there like Hidetaka Miyazaki, to name another video game author, right, who are taking these modes of revenue generation that would otherwise look like mere modes of revenue generation and making them meaningful as a mode of storytelling, right. And to make a long story short that you can read more about in this article, basically what I think he has done, in the dlcs to dark souls and to bloodborne is create these stories that actually could only be told as dlc where the entire conceit of the story hinges upon this kind of perverse paradoxical desire on the part of the player to have a complete gaming experience in the initial story but also reach beyond that and have more of it and it's amazing how a great storyteller can take something like that that might seem self-defeating and make great story out of it. So I think while it's easy to fall into that trap of thinking these things are merely insidious and pushing the industry in the wrong direction, as I often do when I'm feeling cynical, there's reason to stay optimistic and to think about them as just opportunities to further push the limits of what storytellers can do in video games. And so I'm excited about that.
1: Yeah, I think that is quite an interesting distinction. And there is a a huge gap between something like the, the Dark Souls and and Bloodborne DLC or the, I was thinking about um, the last of us left behind DLC, Mm, um, which is, you know, also adds significantly to the narrative and actually gave the, uh, I'm going to say second protagonist Ellie attributes that were then developed later on much more and were very significant actually in the way that how this game is perceived and discussed and on the other hand something like Assassin's Creed Valhalla, which I'm probably going to talk a little bit about more uh, in the next week in our next mm. show where you can easily pay 100 euro for that game and it's like most premium edition. And then the first thing that you encounter when you have to, you know, and you have to do your account and then Ubisoft connect and stuff. And then you get confronted with a storefront where you can purchase additional costumes where you just think like, what? I've just given you a hundred euro for this game. I haven't even played for a minute and I'm already in a store. I think this is a very, a very huge gap and maybe we could uh, dive into that topic a little bit more uh, in uh, another show to come, in another episode to come, because there are lots of them coming ahead. And uh, we hope that this one was entertaining for you out there and maybe even a little bit educational or inspiring. If you appreciated this very first episode, our first careful footsteps in the ways of bringing this this episode, this this podcast to life, then you can obviously support us at patreon.com slash with a terrible fate. This is absolutely precious, especially because it is hard to get such a project off the ground. And I'm saying this with no irony, no sarcasm. The international podcast market is extremely competitive and the algorithms on something like apple podcasts and spotify they will just crush you (laughs) if you don't get any like you know positive reviews if you don't gain traction so if you want to support us in that way then a really excellent way to do so is to give us that delicious five-star rating or to hit that subscribe button because that really helps us to gain some traction and that more people can find out about this show. And if you want to contact us, then you can do that as well. You can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Twitter, and you can write us an email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com with your thoughts and questions. And then I would say we'll talk next week, huh?
0: yeah
2: yes and of course if you want to find any video game analysis in the interim to uh, quench your thirst you can find all of our work podcasts and conversations and our written analyses um, on basically any game that might interest you in general video game theory on with the